Our scripture reading this evening comes to us again from the Old Testament. We'll turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, the second book of the Bible. 32, a famous story of the golden calf. And we're going to read God's Word this evening under the heading of Living for God, No Other Gods. Living for God, that we should have no other gods from Exodus chapter 32. Let's give our attention now to the reading of Exodus chapter 32, the whole of the chapter. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so Aaron said to them, Take the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next days, and they offered burnt offerings to the Lord, or burnt offerings to the Lord, and they uh, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside out of the way that I commanded them, and they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and he went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but it is the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. 
And he threw the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain and he took the calf that they had made. He burned it with fire, ground it to a powder, powder, scattered it upon the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So I said, let any who have gold take it off. And they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose due to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all of the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained to the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before them. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Here ends the reading of God's Word this evening. And then we'll turn also in our Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 34, the 34th Lord's Day in the Catechism, which you can find on page 240 in the Forms and Prayers book in the pew in front of you. Here at Trinity, we read the whole answer together. Uh, But you'll find, once you get to Lord's Day 34, that the whole of the Ten Commandments are written out there. So I will not ask you to read all Ten Commandments. Let it never be said I didn't do anything for you. Uh, Instead, together this evening, we'll read the First Commandment. And then we'll read the next few questions. But question 92 begins with, What is God's law? And together we'll respond with the First Commandment. God spoke all these words, the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then we'll turn the page to question 93. Considering the whole of the Ten Commandments, which we read this morning, how are these commandments divided into two tablets? The first has four commandments, teaching us how we should live in relation to God. The second has six commandments, 
teaching us what we owe our neighbor. Question 94. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. That I rightly know the only true God, trust Him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. Question 95 on page 243. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed Himself in His Word. And we'll be considering that first commandment. Well, blessed congregation, the Ten Commandments are one of the most important pieces of literature in the history of the world. Many people don't, but what many people don't know about the Ten Commandments is that the Bible never actually refers to them as the Ten Commandments. If your Bible is still open to Exodus and you flip back to Exodus chapter 20, you see in verse 1, it says God spoke all these words. They're referred to in the Bible as the ten words of God. We see this in Exodus chapter 34 and also in Deuteronomy 4 verse 13 and Deuteronomy 4, 10 verse 4. Now, no doubt they are commands, but they are to be seen not simply as a legal code, but they are framed as God's ten principles for life. These are God's ten words. His ten spiritual principles that God wants His people to follow. Now some of you may be seasoned enough in life to remember the Ten Commandments actually being an integral part of even our American culture. These ten words used to be found in government buildings. They used to be found in courtrooms. Some of you may even remember these Ten Commandments being an integral part of the school system. But the relevance of these Ten Commandments has fallen out of vogue in recent years. There have been movements, political movements, to remove the Ten Commandments from lawns of courthouses. Even in Canada, at the Peace Tower, the Ten Commandments are written on the foundation of the building, along with other Scripture verses. And there is movements to sort of remove the Ten Commandments from the culture in which we live. And to be honest, sadly, we're even seeing the church begin to neglect the Ten Commandments. As a culture, we are forgetting what the Ten Commandments are and why the Ten Commandments matter. And they matter because as humans, we are moral creatures. Every single one of us in this room believes 
in moral ought. You believe in what people should do and should not do. Even in our secular, postmodern, enlightened world, every single person believes that there is right and there is wrong. I'll give you an example. For instance, if a man and a woman move in together and they throw off the moral ought, the cultural norm of being married. So we're going to live together. Before we're married, we're going to have an intimate relationship. This is we're throwing off this idea of marriage, yet they still believe it's wrong to cheat on one another. That's a moral ought. Here's another one. As a society, we have gotten used to cuss words in our movies and TV shows and music or even just in our personal lives, and we say it's just a word. It's a four-letter word. What's the big deal? Unless it's a racial slur or an insult. That's a moral ought. What I'm trying to prove to you is that as a society, even if we don't want the Ten Commandments, we still believe in moral code. We believe we should be ethical, moral people. The question becomes, what kind of morals should we have? Well, Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, taught that we can determine morality by rational thought. As if we can gather some of the brightest minds or all the people together and we can figure out what morality should be. But I can't follow Kant. Christians can't follow Kant here. He's not taking seriously the problem of sin on the human mind. Roman Catholics and some Protestants now hold to what's called natural law theory. That we can determine morality from nature. And also from the law written on our hearts. And there's some truth to that. But where does the Bible say we should turn to for morality? Where does the Scripture say we should turn to to learn what is right and what is wrong? Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says this. It's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. I like the way Kevin DeYoung puts it. If we want moral instruction, don't listen to your gut. Listen to your God. God has given us a moral truth that doesn't depend on our minds, that doesn't depend on our culture, it doesn't depend on your situation and time in the Ten Commandments. It's a transcendent ought. It's a transcendent moral code for the world. And so our catechism, I think, rightly devotes 11 Lord's Days to the study of the Ten Commandments. And so what I want to do this for the next 10 weeks is to start a series which I'm titling Living for God. And I want to look at each of these Ten Commandments in turn with you and stories from the Bible. Illustrations about how it is the blessed way to live for God. You'll notice here that the Ten Commandments are included in the section of gratitude. That God gave this law to show us how to live as Christians 
in light of his grace. Because you see, even Christians are now struggling to understand the moral code of God. But this shouldn't be the case. The Bible is full of stories, not just lists of commandments, but full of stories about how important the Ten Commandments are. And so I want to look at ten stories from the Bible with you over the next ten weeks about how if we want to know right from wrong, if we want to know how to live the good life, if we want to know how to live in such a way that our friends and our families are blessed by us, that we should look to God's good law. And so I want this evening to consider the first commandment with you, and our theme for our time together is that our hearts are idle factories. So don't put anything in the place of God. And we're going to see this in three points from Exodus chapter 32. Worship Yahweh only. Shun all idolatry. And turn to Christ always. Let's look first at worship Yahweh only. The catechism is drawing our attention to question 92 which is the first commandment, where it says these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And it ha- which has to do with the exclusivity of God. Yahweh is not simply interested in being recognized as a strong and mighty deity. That would not have been a radical claim in the ancient world. In the Old Testament days, every single nation had an impressive God. Every single person had a sacred text. They had temples, they had priests, they had sacrifices. What God was saying here, or what was radical in what God said here, what set Israel apart from other gods was that he demanded to be worshipped alone. He wanted to be their only God to the exclusion of every other God. And so we turn this evening to the most infamous story of rebellion in the Old Testament. God, through Moses, has delivered His people from Pharaoh. He has led them to Sinai and given Him His law and His, his tabernacle. And now as Moses is on top of the mountain, the people turn against them. They can use, this can be seen in the words they say to Aaron in Exodus chapter 32. They say, up, make us gods, for who, sh- who shall go before us as for this Moses? They're rebelling against God's mediator. They speak of him in a derogatory way. In fact, in the Hebrew it even says, this fellow Moses. This one who brought us out here and inflicted this misery upon us. We don't know what's happened to him. So up, Aaron, and make us a god. But furthermore, the Hebrew actually leads us to believe that Aaron was being pressured here as well. In the ESV it says, people gathered themselves together to Aaron. But the Hebrew is more ominous. It says the people people gathered themselves against Aaron. And if you flip to verse 21, 
It leads me to believe that that's the right translation. When Moses confronts Aaron, he says, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? The picture we're given is one of great unrest. There's great rebellion in the camp at the base of the mountain. But the point here is not that they have rebelled against Moses, which they have, or not that they're putting pressure on Aaron, which they did, but it was a rebellion against Yahweh. Make us gods who shall go before us. Before us. Are your alarms going off as they say that? Because we've read that quite a few times today. Where have you heard this? Look again at the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. In fact, in the Hebrew, al-panim, it means you should have no other gods before my face. Before my face. What's happening here is that Moses has gone up the mountain into the presence of God and they don't know where he is. And they don't want to go into God's presence themselves. Remember they said, you go into the presence of God, we'll stay down here at the base of the mountain. The person who is supposed to connect them to God is missing. And what if God breaks out and begins to destroy us? What if we touch that mountain and we have to be stoned? They're saying we need someone who can be a mediator, an intermediary between us and Yahweh. I don't think what they're asking here is for a different God. I think they're asking Aaron for a second God. A representative God who can stand between them and Yahweh. They want Yahweh and a golden calf. Yahweh and a mediator who can stand before them. Yahweh and somebody who can appear before the face of God. In fact, verse 4, if you look at that with me this evening, the leaders of Israel say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They speak in the plural. There is more than one God. And see, this has often been the fault that God's people have struggled with. That little word, and. The Lord is fine, but we want the Lord and Baal. The Lord and Asherah. The Lord and money. The Lord and honor. See, we are quite happy to have God in our lives so long as He doesn't mess anything up. But the first commandment tells us that we can only worship God rightly if we worship Him alone. To the exclusion of everything else. And the rest of Exodus 32 shows us this. That when we violate the first commandment, 
what we actually do is obscure the gospel. See, the other nine commandments are about what you should do and what you should not do. Do not murder, do not kill, honor your parents, and on and on. But the first commandment is about your relationship with God. That you are called to give Yahweh your complete allegiance. Our catechism makes this point in question 93. That I rightly know the only true God, trust Him alone, look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently love, fear, and honor Him with my whole heart. Idolatry strikes against that notion. You see this in one of the most shocking statements of the Old Testament. This verse has always stuck out to me. That Aaron takes the gold, he makes the calf, and look at what the leaders of Israel say. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They're undoing the Bible here. They are reversing the Exodus. The book of Exodus tells us that God, Yahweh, brought them out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He defeated the tyranny of Pharaoh. He split the Red Sea. He did all of this because He loves them. And the bull was a symbol of deity in the ancient Egyptian pagan religion. Something that God had already demonstrated. He has complete mastery over. All those Ten Commandments showed them how uh, impotent and weak their gods are. And here they are saying, actually, Ra is one of those gods that helped you. Actually, Baal is a god you can serve. They're giving a false God the glory of the one true God. Look back at question 92 of your catechism with me if you can. How does the first commandment begin? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. By bowing down to a false god, Israel is saying, no, you're not. You are not the only god that brought us out. You are not the one who brought us out of the land of Egypt. You are not the one who took us out of the house of slavery. It is you and, insert idol. This is very serious. One commentator says, by building a calf and then changing Exodus 20, verse 2, Israel is fashioning a new and a false religion. Do you see what Israel is doing by adding another God? They are reinterpreting His commands. They are changing God's saving message. They are obscuring the love of God for sinners in Egypt. Marring the image of the God who has saved him. It obscures the gospel. 
And you see, at the heart of the first commandment, brothers and sisters, is love. The heart of the first commandment is love. That if we truly love God, we should love no one else. John Calvin put it this way, the sin of the first commandment is like a shameless woman who brings an adulterer before her husband's eyes only to vex his mind. And marriage is a good analogy here for the first commandment. You see, for those of you who are married, I put the question to you, how would it go if you came home and you said, honey, here is my new friend. And I'm going to be spending a few nights with him or her. And I'll be there for meals every once in a while. And I'll be spending time with them. And I'm going to divide my interest between you and her or him. But don't worry, you'll get along. They're friendly. They'll contribute. They'll support. How would your spouse respond to that? They would be loath, furious, angry. When you made a covenant with me, you made a covenant of exclusivity. You would love me alone. God is saying He wants your love alone. Just like how a spouse has every right to be jealous to share her husband or he his wife, so it is with God. He will not share your affections and He demands that you forsake every other love. Love God exclusively. In fact, one of the oldest creeds in the Bible, one so foundational to the Jews, was Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. If you have a Bible, turn to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 this evening. This was one of the foundational verses of the Old Testament. When a baby was born, the Jews would even recite this over the child. And the oldest creed in the Bible is about loving God exclusively. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. We are called to choose the Lord and Him alone every day. To forsake all others, and to commit ourselves to Him exclusively. We love God because He first loved us. And there ought to be no and in our religion. No Yahweh and Baal and Asherah and money and insert whatever sin or even a good thing. We love Him because He is worthy of our affection. He is worthy of our adoration and worship. Well, I want to apply this to our lives and one of the things that stood out to me here in this passage is that Aaron and Israel teach us a valuable lesson that we as Christians need to beware of something that looks Christian but has variation. See, Aaron and the priests dressed up this idol, this golden calf, in Jewish garb. They made sacrifices to it. We read that Aaron proclaimed a feast to the Lord after the next day. 
They even tried to associate this God with the God of Exodus. But the Lord's evaluation, we'll see in just a moment, was that it was still idolatry. Congregation, I want to encourage you to take care with books that might seem to suggest you can have communion with Christ in unbiblical ways. Take care of what you listen to when preachers might say have a low view of the church and a low view of the sacraments. Or music that might have questionable theology. We think, well, it's just a little thing. Is it really going to matter? But God cares about the little things. He cares that we worship Him exclusively. And through these little things, Satan often brings idols into our hearts. There's another thing I'd like to point out to you here, another word of application. is that I think what led the people to this idolatry was panic. They were panicking. What are we going to do without Moses? We need somebody in between God and us. But let us remember that even in times of fear, we must walk by faith. God is for us in Christ. We do not need to fear anything. Let's look at the subject of idolatry now. Our second point. Shun all idolatry. So Aaron, we read, takes the gold, he fashions it into the form of a calf, and people begin to worship it. They're having festivals and feasts, burnt offerings and peace offerings, and the people are living life with this new God. But I want to ask the question, what is this thing? What is this thing they're worshiping? We know that Moses, once he comes down the mountain, in verse 20, it says he burns it. So it's probably made with wood and overlaid with a thin skin of gold. Allow me to be blunt this evening. It's a piece of wood. It's metal. It's not a god. It's a trinket. This is a claim that God makes all throughout the Bible. That in reality, there are no gods except Him. I'm going to use a technical word and then I'll define it for you. The gods of this world have no ontology. Meaning they don't have a being. They can exist as something we make. We can set them up. We can bow down to them. But apart from God, they do not exist. They have no being. In fact, the whole Bible says this. Psalm 96 verse 5 says, For all the gods of people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The Lord has a being. Psalm 115 says their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have no mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. Ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. The Bible's claim is that the gods of this world are false gods. And that there's only one supreme being in this universe... Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Now, I doubt that many of us feel tempted to worship cows. Uh, You might like to eat them. 
Uh, but you're probably not tempted to bow down to them. But remember that this story is ultimately not about a physical idol, but about Israel's, Israel's heart. Rightly, John Calvin did say that our hearts are idol factories. And so our catechism rightly uh, defines idolatry not as golden statues, shrines, or images, although that can be the case, but defines it as having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of God, of the only true God. And that's what Israel fell into. They put their faith in something alongside of God. You know, it's easy for us to look down our noses at Israel here for their idolatry. What are you doing? I've been to, in my Bible college years, they took us to a Buddhist temple once, and I saw people lighting candles uh, to this massive idol. I've been to Hindu temples and seeing people bowing down and bringing fruits to a little golden statue. And a Sikh temple where there's, you get into this big room and there's this one cushion in the middle and there's a book on top of it and people are literally fanning the book with palm branches. It can be easy for us to look down on these people for their idols. We might not be tempted to bow down to an idol light candles or fan a book, but we would be foolish to think that we do not bow down to our own idols. I'll give you a short example. Lisa told me once when we were dating that she would look up the Blue Jays score before she called me to see what kind of mood I was in. And they weren't very good back then, so I was often in a bad mood. It's a silly example, but something had begun to consume me. I began to bow down to it. So much so that it changed who I was. In our hearts, we all know that there are things that can capture our attention more than they should. And don't forget that even good things can become idols. But a good way to check if something has become an idol is what is my hope in? Ask yourself that question. What is my hope in? And I'm not talking about only for eternity. Even as a Blue Jays fan, I, my hope is not in them for eternity. But what is my hope for the day? What is my hope for this year? What's going to get me through my life? Am I trusting in the good life in Yahweh for the good life or money? Is my hope for this year in getting a boyfriend or a girlfriend or in the Lord? Is romance and sexuality what satisfies me or Jesus? Is my hope in food, in family, or in football? None of those things that I just mentioned are bad in their appropriate context, but it cannot be what you base your hope on. The Lord wants us to have faith in Him. In the God, the only true God who has revealed Himself in His Word. God takes this seriously. And so, returning to the book of Exodus, 
rank idolatry is going on on the base of the mountain. Moses is on top, and God tells Moses how he feels about idolatry. Look with me at Exodus 32. Go down for your people. That's not how God refers to Israel in the Old Testament, is it? He always calls them my people. My chosen people. But here he's saying, they're yours now. They've broken covenant with me. Go down to your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. They have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who has brought you out of the land of Egypt. God is so disturbed. He is so angry with their sin. He says, I'm willing to destroy them right now. Verse 10. My wrath burns against them. And I may make a great nation out of you. Do you remember God's promise to Abraham? I will make of you a great nation. Genesis 16, 17, 18. Here God is saying, I am so fed up with Israel their idolatry, I am willing to wipe out the promise and start over with you, Moses. You see, sometimes as Christians, we take the last six commandments very seriously. Honor your mom and your dad. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. But the first four, exclusivity of God, keeping the Sabbath day holy, honoring His name, having no idols, we take those a little less seriously. That's not the way God feels. He says, the Catechism says, we are to avoid and shun all idolatry. It is so serious. Idolatry is such a serious sin. The catechism even makes this profound statement. It can endanger our own salvation. It's so serious that God would destroy His covenant people over it. That's how seriously God takes idolatry. Now, of course, God is sovereign. He does neither of these things. Nobody who Christ has died for shall be plucked out of His hands. Amen. Nor would He ever destroy His promise for the sake of Christ. But these two statements are given to us to show us the gravity of idolatry. The first commandment is so important that you shall have no other gods before me. Well, maybe during this evening's worship service, you've said, well, Pastor, I, I realize that I'm an idolatrous person. I know that I have idols that I too bow down to, but what can I do to help it? But our God is getting at something important here. He is reminding us that we are religious creatures by nature. We must worship something. So this evening, if you're going to tear down the idol of self... 
tear down the idols of approval, comfort, relationships, or success. We need something that can fill that void. And so the only way to escape an idol is to intentionally embrace something that is actually worthy of worship. God doesn't just say, don't do that. God doesn't just say, don't worship that, the Blue Jays, health, or money, or whatever, but He gives us something better to worship. He gives us something that's more fulfilling, more worthy of His worship, and we see in Exodus 32, He gives us Himself. Calvin was right. Our hearts are idol factories. And so in order to get rid of that idol, in order to put it to death, we need to turn to Christ and worship Him. The rest of Exodus 32 is devoted to the intercession of a mediator. God is angry for their idolatry, but that is not the end of the story. Moses immediately falls on his face and begins to intercede on behalf of these people. Look what Moses says. Your people, not my people, Lord, your people whom you brought out of Egypt. He is pleading the grace of God over them. Beseeching God, remember your election. Remember how you saved Egypt. Remember, Moses goes on, the promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Israel. Not only that you would give them a plot of land, but that you would give them something that they would inherit, look what Moses says, forever. He stops praying about the earthly Canaan and starts praying for the heavenly Canaan. Not the country that exists in the Middle East. He begins to think of heaven. He begins to plead the covenant promise of the seed that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob over this sinful and rebellious people. He is saying, even though you are so angry with your, their sin, look to your Son, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and consider the cross that He will bear for these people. Moses pleads for the grace of Jesus Christ. And we read that God relents from the disaster He had spoken of bringing on His people. The rest of Exodus chapter 32 is just as eventful. Moses goes down the mountain. He smashes the tablets that God has made for him. But that doesn't take away the sins of the people. He took the calf that Aaron had made and he grinds it up and he sprinkles it over the water and makes them drink it. But that doesn't take away their sins either. We read earlier this evening that Moses even takes a sword and the Levites take a sword and they slew 3,000 men who were against the Lord, but this didn't atone for a single sin. 
God said that He would send a plague upon His people in judgment, but that doesn't atone for a single sin either. But we read that an angel came before them and that there would come a day when He would visit His sins upon them. He is speaking of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. How Christ would come whom all the sacrifices prefigured, that He would lay Himself down upon that cross. And upon that cross, He would cry out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? That would be the day God would visit the wrath of these people upon His Son. That's why God relents. That's why they can be in the presence of God. That's why there was anyone standing at the base of the mountain even after all of that. Because Christ died for even the idolatry of His people. So brothers and sisters, the first commandment, let us be clear, does not mean worshiping God the Father to the exclusion of Christ, but worshiping Christ who gives us access to the Father. Worship the one mediator between God and men. Worship the one who is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus Christ is the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess His worship. We worship Him because He is God who would even lay His life down for idolaters like you and like me. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we give You thanks that You are Almighty God who is worthy of all our worship. And even though we so often fail in giving You the homage that You are due, You are pleased to send us Your Son. And that as surely as we plead His grace over our lives, You shall relent in sending disaster. We need not fear damnation or judgment because Christ has took it all. We thank You, Lord, that You call us to worship You aright in spirit and in truth. And so bless us, Lord, this evening as we seek to do that. In the name of Christ, Your Son. Amen.